Blog Talk Radio. Sunday, everyone. This is Candace Frederick calling um, regarding today's show, uh, Cinema and Noir. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, I am joined by my lovely co-host, Kimberly Renee. Happy Sunday, Kim. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Thank you guys all for joining us and tuning in to this episode where we are going to talk about, um, we're going to do a quick roundup of the Tribeca Film Festival that just ended today as we speak, I think. Um, we're also going to talk about two of the most talked about new um, TV series right now, um, later on in the show, Shots Fired, as well as Dear White People. Dear White People, the series just debuted on Netflix Friday. Um, it's a very, very quick ser- um, season, so if you guys haven't checked it out, it's very easy to binge watch in one sitting. Half an hour episodes. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that um, and just, you know, I guess comparing it to the movie and just talk about some of the themes, some of the conversations that have um, come out of the new series, um, as well as Shots Fired. So without further ado, we're going to talk about, we're going to open the show with um, a roundup of the Tribeca Film Festival, which again, like we said, um, just wrapped today. Um, and so I had the pleasure of attending um, many <laughs> different screenings and different events. Um, it kicked off on the 19th of this month and ended today. Um, and it was, very, it was a very interesting festival. I mean, lots of really cool things to see. And I think what was really good about it is that um, – so many different genres were represented between horror, between shorts, and um, lots of women filmmakers daring um, women narratives as well. That was really, I thought, is something that is worth mentioning, um, including A Suitable Girl. I'm trying to look up her as we speak. But um, the director of A Suitable Girl, which is a full feature movie um, about... Um, um, sorry, a full feature documentary. I unfortunately I did not go to change to see it, but it was in my mind to see it for a while. Um, and I just couldn't get the time together. But it was directed by Sarita Karana and Kimriki Munra. Um, and I'm just going to read what it says in the description. Um, a suitable girl follows three young women in India struggling to maintain their identities and follow their dreams amid intense pressure to get married. The film examines the women's complex relationship with marriage, family, and society. Um, and it was largely a woman filmmaking team, aside from the two directors. Um, and they also won the, um, I want to say, Albert Mazel's Doc- Documentary Award um, 
for at the Tribeca Film Festival. So that was really major, and I hope. I haven't seen it, again, I haven't seen it, but um, I hear really good things about it, and I'm really just happy to see women representation and women of color representation, particularly um, Indian representation that we don't really hardly ever see. Um, another really interesting, um, a short movie that I did get a chance to see, and I was happy that it got recognized at the award ceremony, was Retouched a short film drama. I think it was only like 19 minutes long. Um, and it's an, an Iranian director who wrote it in the Iranian cast as well, or, Iranian, or an Iranian director who wrote and directed the movie, and it stars an Iranian cast. Um, the director's name is um, Kaveh Masahiri. He was unable to attend and pick up his own award because of the band. Um, Trump's ridiculous ban. Um, so he had to kind of um, send in like a video acceptance speech. But um, the film itself, I don't know if it will get distribution or what, but it's fantastic. It's one of those really kind of dark movies that um, it's essentially so this woman, um, a young couple, young married couple, a woman and a man, um, had. He was this. In the beginning, it kind of sets up that he's kind of overbearing, to say the least, and very just um, like demanding. Uh, you know, basic things like go pick this up or go do this. Like, she, like he's very. He has a lot to handle, a lot, a lot to take, and she's actually very, very reasonable. She just goes and does whatever he's asking her to do. But you can tell that she's doing it begrudgingly, and that she's been doing it for so long that she's probably getting annoyed with it, but um, all that to stay in set, setting up the actual um, thrust of the action is when he accidentally um, drops a barbell on his neck while he's working out, and he um, is struggling, and, you know, she, at first she's like, oh, I, I, you know, she's recognizing that there's an issue, um, and then she just kind of watches him, watches him struggle and eventually die <laughs> um and but it is very interesting that's very um not gory but just very morbid but um i think it talks about the oppression that she's feeling and in the way that she reacts after the death scene is also very very profound and very um very interesting way to talk about uh the state of feminism in iran and so I'm glad that that was recognized. Um, other films that I have seen um, are, I saw a lot, but one that I, um, of, four that are of note are um, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which is a documentary. Um, I think the first film to actually talk about um, LGBT pioneer Marsha P. Johnson Um it's an interesting movie in, because it, it's almost like it opens up, um, and if you guys are unfamiliar with her story, um, she was a um, trans woman who was very pivotal in terms of the LGBT movement, but was often cast aside um, because the gay rights movement was more prominent and more accepting of just people who identified as gay rather than people who identified uh, as non-gay but of the LGBT 
movement. Um, and so they talked about that in, in the movie, um, but the kind of gateway narrative is her death, um, which was um, legally ruled a, homic- uh, a suicide, but those who knew her, including Sylvia Rivera, another um, trans woman of color pioneer, um, very, very outspoken. Um, they had contested at the time that they didn't think that it was a suicide and they are continuing, or rather those who are still alive in, in, in the movement, which unfortunately does not include Sylvia Rivera, who literally died about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. Um, but it talks about basically kind of in reopen or trying to reopen a case, hope reopen her case as a homicide. They are kind of approaching it almost like a murder mystery kind of, but in the way that the police and investigation was handled and, you know, kind of recovering all these um, old footage, old um, like audio tapes of her kind of talking about, you know, the mafia after her and, and kind of talking about almost like um, she is alluding to the possibility of her own death and was clearly in fear. But a lot of these tapes were um, just or it was, it was very, very, you can tell that it was, the case was just very, very mishandled because they were in their haste to just close the case. They're just like, okay, suicide and just drop it. I don't, you know, it, it was, I want to say, in the early 90s. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to look that up right now. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, it came at a time, yeah, nice thing, too. came at a time um, when LGBT rights, um, LGBT acknowledgement, appreciation, anything that LGBT visibility was just not, not a real thing. Um, it was still considered underground. It was still considered taboo. It was just still very much not in the mainstream like it is today, despite the many efforts and the many rallies and um, political movements that were underway at the time. Um, and so in kind of talking about her story and the, and the lack of just, just the poor mis- the mismanagement of her um, her Yes. Um, one of the women of anti- the Anti-Violence Project, which um, is a project that basically talks or is a support group and a forum to support um, particularly women, um, LGBT women who have been cast out and who are in some way marginalized and is just a support um organization for them and what they do in light of all the the many um, unsolved and unappreciated of um, trans women particularly, um, they, you know, go out of their way to help, you know, give their stories to the police or talk to family or just make sure that these stories just don't die. Um, And so juxtapose and Marsha's um, legacy, the the narrative of her legacy. They are also opening the conversation to broaden the appreciation of LGBT history um, and LGBT rights. 
Um, and so it talks about how a case like Marsha's is still actually happening today where we'll, we might hear um, about a trans woman, particularly a trans woman of color, being killed. And we'll, we might hear about the case. We won't hear anything else. We won't hear any resolution. Was the murder solved or anything like that. And it's just really classified. And so this, this movie um, just talks about how, you know, something's changed with something's in the machine. Um, and so that was really profound. And I think it did a good job of that. It, it was, I will say it was more of a broad look at LGBT history um, or rather trans history um, and trans um, movements than it was specific specifically Marsha's story, which was really a gateway to talk about this larger um, conversation. Um, And so that was interesting. They talked a lot also about um, Sylvia Rivera, who was very close to Marsha P. Johnson. um, She she was in it uh, posthumously, but she was in it um, pretty often just kind of they they talked a lot about how this their stories intertwined and how they basically got cast aside you know in and out of the lgbt community um even when they tried to just exist in a mainstream community they were cast aside when they tried to exist within the lgbt conversation they were also cast aside and that was definitely a point of frustration for the two of them and so they talked a lot about that um but it's good. It's, it's definitely the type of movie that the, that your mind will just start going, you know, after you finish watching it. So I definitely would um, sort of recommend it if you get your hands on it for sure. Um, yeah. I, I um, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I saw, I think, on YouTube maybe two or three years ago, um, like some video clips of her. I think they were making a documentary about her at the time of her death. And it's so crazy because I hadn't really heard much about her. But when you hear her story, she was literally front and center of this movement mm-hmm. and, like, has been mm-hmm. completely cast aside, like you said, just because she's trans. And that was not the mm-hmm. main focus of the cause at that time. But she literally mm-hmm. was right there through it all. And you just – I had never heard mm-hmm. of her until recently. Mm-hmm. So it kind of yeah. crazy how they always get kind of cast aside. Like, there has to be one goal for the movement, and, mm-hmm. you know, every one individual cause kind of gets cast aside for the quote-unquote greater good, which is really not helping anything. But, yeah. yeah, it's just that, that really just frustrating division within the community, which I, I think I think still exists today. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just particularly just, Hard, particularly because there was something going on when within the gay movement, like their like their voices. After many many tries, they actually got a platform that people even outside of the gay um, community paid attention to, and trans community or or trans voices are still just not really heard, and so mm-hmm. that. Um, that was definitely a point of um, commentary in the movie, definitely. Yeah. Um, go on to Whitney, Can I Be Me, another documentary. Um, interestingly, you know, most of the, 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 the films that actually had people of color and prominent 
roles or behind the camera were mostly documentaries. And I'm like struggling hard to think of ones that were not um, documentaries, but but I definitely did not see them. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. Um, I feel like there was definitely more um, inclusivity in terms of um, racial, um, racial diversity. But anyway, I'll say that to say, Whitney, Can I Be Me documentary is pretty much exactly what you expect it to be in the way that I think people, I think people are kind of going into the documentary thinking that the film is going to reveal something that we don't already know, that Whitney Houston had a very, very, very long, which I might have, I don't think I understood how long it was, but she had a very long relationship with drugs. Um, at least 20 years prior to her death, maybe close to the 30s. Um, and so that was really kind of, that was definitely a, a major focus, talking about how somebody who came from this very kind of musical family, seemingly um, of privilege, descended so, quote, unquote, fast. Um, even though it was a very, it took a long time, but it was gradual. It was very steady. Um, and they talked about, <clears throat> they talked about her relationship with Bobby Brown, and talked about it. Was, here's the thing with this documentary: it seemed as though, and this is what I kind of have issue with. It seems like it was very much kind of. It, it, it felt very much. Um, I would, you know, lack of a better word, I would say exploitative because it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was coming from somebody who knew her. It seemed like it was coming from somebody who just basically had researched, you know, her home videos. I I never know who's ever doing like these home videos, like with the Amy Winehouse documentary. I'm like, who's doing these home videos? Why would they put this on tape? Doesn't make any sense, but whatever. They, 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 they found these, um, and they found, like, these really intimate, like, videos of Whitney and Bobby just kind of, like, very kind of compromising positions at some points, but very kind of, some of them, they're having really intimate conversations about some state of their marriage. Sometimes they're talking about, I think there was one clip where they're talking about Bobby Christina's, like, well, Bobby brings up the fact that he thinks that she might have a, a weight problem. This is, she was probably, like, maybe 12 or 13 at the time. I don't know where this footage comes from, but there's like endless amounts of footage of their personal conversations. Um, so I always think that that's just really uncomfortable to watch. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what makes me think is very exploitative because it's like, who, why would anybody release this to, to the public? This is very kind of intimate. Um, and so I felt like I was kind of intruding off and same thing. That was my same exact reaction to the Amy Winehouse documentary because it's like, this is crazy. And interestingly, in both instances, um, the family did not want either of those documentaries going out. There's no one, uh, let me think, there's no one from Whitney's family that is interviewed for this documentary. There's old footage um, that they include in the documentary of, like, Sissy Houston's um, interview with Oprah after uh, Whitney Houston dies. Um they, of course, had the um, Diane Sawyer interview, which was, as we know, a train wreck. Um, they, yeah, they, um, 
had, um, I think, old interviews of Bobby Brown and um, Robin, last name escapes me, but a very good friend of Whitney, at least in the beginning, like the first half of her career until she apparently had very volatile relationship with Bobby Brown and they were both kind of vying for her attention at one point. It was, it was, it was just very tumultuous. Um, her personal relationship, um, it, it just highlighted how tumultuous her personal relationships were, but it also didn't really give audiences an, an idea of who she, who were her real friends. Other than Robin and other people who were actually on her payroll, who were people who were really her Who are her people? And so that was right. that's still my question. Just like, why are they not here? Like, I feel like, or I, I maybe mean, she didn't have. Like, I don't know. But it just definitely seemed extremely one-sided, and so that bothered me. So that happened. Oh, and also, what I thought was particularly interesting that I don't think a lot of narratives do um, kind of mention when they talk about Houston's story is how she, when she rose to fame, um, you know, under the tutelage of Clive Davis and really became a, a pop star and was very, very accepted, quickly accepted into the mainstream white media and white audiences, which immediately was reacting in such a way that she abandoned her blackness and abandoned her black community, which in this documentary, you see how much that takes a toll on her um, and that she recognized it and that she, that didn't go amiss for her. Even I think they shared um, one of the clips of her giving up to accept a Soul Train Music Award and she was booed off the stage. Um, And this was at the height of her career. Um, mm-hmm. And so things like that, that is, could have arguably, con, you know, contributed to her demise, although, again, she, in terms of her um, relationship with drugs, way preceded her stardom. Um, and so that's tragic. Um, there is, I'm going to try to, oh. No, I was going to say, it's always I was so weird about these documentaries, especially after someone passes, mm-hmm. you know, and like if the family's involved, it's like, okay, are they involved because they want to, you know, scrap the narrative that we're going to get, which of course they want to do in some cases, but also we want to make sure that the, the story is accurate too, to some degree. Mm-hmm. So when you don't have that family mm-hmm. involvement, it's like, what's the purpose of this? Like, what's your, like you said, like, yeah. what's your angle? What are you getting out of this? Is it like a, like mm-hmm. a, to you, Whitney Houston, you suck. Yeah. What is the problem? Like, I mean, we know she had drug issues. Everyone, that's well documented. Mm-hmm. We know that. But what are you giving us that's mm-hmm. new, but not really infringing upon, like, like you said, the videos? That's kind of weird. Like, I don't know if I want to see. First of all, I don't understand why they recorded that, but that's their personal business. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so how do I don't know who's recording them? it. I just don't. Yeah, it's like, like, yeah. <laughs> like a setup. Like what? I don't know. This all seems kind of catchy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it. yeah. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, I literally had the exact same review. I don't know if you guys or if you had seen um, Amy the way Amy Winehouse documentary is like, ew, this is really uncomfortable to watch. I mean, we literally see her doing drugs in that documentary and just like in a very intimate way like she's hanging out with friends or hanging out by herself I'm just like why would you allow anyone to shoot this this is 
it's just very it's just very weird. I just don't think that that's something that they would have been complicit with, even right. in their most uh, non lucid state. Um, but anyway, that's always my thing with any of those types of documentaries, and I feel like they're very well received. And I don't know if it's our our if it's just tabloid culture that we're in that yeah. is making, that is kind of yeah yeah which could very much be the case but I I mean just like in actual tabloid culture we're, I, I I just don't want to hear that because I feel like that's not information that I should be privy to honestly I do think that there are personal lives um but there's moving on to Two Sentence Horror Stories, which is a horror anthology. And anybody who write, reads my blog, they know that I hate horror anthologies. But Two Sentence Horror <laughs> Stories, written, directed, created by a woman of color, Vera Miao. Shout out to Vera Miao. Um, she's an Asian-American uh, filmmaker. And she, the only, the only, the only, um, unveiled one of the episodes and I think it's a ten part series as an anthology but they they released one of the, the the premiere episode and instantly um transfixed by it. I mean it's racially diverse but also really good. It's not just racially diverse for the sake of racial diversity and cultural uh culture diversity. It is actually it's creepy. It's thematically mature. Um, it's just really, it's, it's, yeah, it's just really, um, it's just good. I'll just say that. <laughs> and the, the fact that it was written, directed, and created by a woman of color is just the icing on the cake and not the, not the reason why it's good, but it helps. <laughs> um, I was very, very happy. Like, I, I heard, I understood who was behind it after I actually saw the first episode and I was just like, oh my gosh, of course. This makes total sense and it's amazing. So um I would um I would recommend that for anybody else who's a whole fan. LA ninety two, um, another documentary. Um it is um about the year of the or the yeah, the year leading up to the LA riots of nineteen ninety two. Um, so it talks about um, all the various instances and events and, and examples of injustice, police brutality, and um, the actual climate of L.A. at large, all of its communities, um, but particularly the black community and the Korean community, the black, black Korean um, relations, um, both economically as well as socially. Um, and it, it's a really, really, really strong documentary that kind of, for me, I, I, I have to say I'm very far, and I know there's a bunch of movies right now, including Let It Fall, which is by John Ridley, which I know folks are talking about John Ridley right now, but Let It Fall is an amazing documentary that it, totally see that if you guys didn't chance to see it. I know it aired on ABC, I want to say last Friday, but whenever that comes back, totally watch it. And I know it's in select theaters, um, so check that out. Um, but LA-92, as opposed to Let It Fall, only talks about the year 
um, leading up to the the LA riots, but it does um, feature in in doing so and talking about how um, talking about that climate and talking about LA's just wrought history of uh, of um, violence against Black people, um, police brutality, and social injustice at large. It does. Um, Kind of, I think it opens the documentary by um, by highlighting news reports of the 19, uh, 1965 riots, which was also, I mean, yes, yeah, 1965 Watts riots, which was um, also propelled by police brutality, similarly to the LA riots, um, and also to note the LA riots were not. In all the documentaries, I think, have covered this by now, but, they, but what is very important to remember is that the L.A. riots were not sparked strictly by the Rodney King, um, his, his beaters' acquittal. It was leading, that was the culmination of frustration. Um, and so this movie does a really good job at focusing on just in 355 days the crazy that was swirling around this one city that was um, ignored, that was mishandled. And once the riots erupted, then it became, oh, it became an issue. It became a crisis because also... Black people weren't the only people involved in the in the LA riots, and so that was another thing that this movie um, talks about as well in terms of when it came to the LA riots, when it when it wasn't just you know uh, black people killing other black people or whatever, they 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 actually started to pay attention, like oh this cannot happen on American soil, this cannot happen on LA, you know in our in our community. There was a there was definitely a need, and I would say between the legal, the law enforcement, or from law enforcement to give L.A. A.K.A. Hollywood a very specific perception, and once they were unable to control that perception, then they became very frantic, <laughs> and as a result, um, and I don't know if any, if any of you and of course you, Kim, as well, saw O.J. Man in America, which I think we talked about that before, but um, how the police, once it got to that level of just, they didn't care. And and this movie also kind of reaffirms that they didn't care and they were also so um, terrified to go to a black neighborhood where they saw clearly on TV that white men were being dragged out of trucks, just just willingly being dragged out of, out of the trucks and being nearly to death. And so lots of images like that are definitely very triggering in this documentary. Um, but I think it's very succinct and very, and I know a lot of documentaries, including the I Am Not Your Negro, was juxtaposing um, the words of James Baldwin with the um, with like images of present day injustice. Neither Let It Fall or LA ninety two does that because it's almost like it's it's you don't have to be told that this still happens because you already know because you're living here that you're you're a living human being and so you don't need to be pointed point you don't need that 
pointed out to you. Um, so I thought that that was very striking. But in it, what what's interesting about in this recovery to um, highlight some of these news reports that were from 1965 regarding the Watts riot is literally the exact same news reports. And, it, and it's being told in the exact same way by white faces trying to understand um, what's happening um, and reporting the news, not understanding the news. Um, and so I thought that was also particularly interesting. But, so lastly, um, this is not a meeting, but it was a conversation I attended between Francesca Lamby, um, one of the writers and stars of Decoded, interviews Decoded, which I'm trying to now watch because I, I didn't even realize, I don't know, I thought that was a completely different other type of platform, but it's an actual TV show, so I'm trying to find it. Um, she kind of sprung to fame, I want to say, um, from a major viral video called Shit um, by Don't Say. And so it was very satirical, but also very kind of cheeky in a dear white people kind of way, like, we're saying this, but can you stop doing that, though? <laughs> you know, we're making fun of you right now, but, like, this is not okay that you do this. Um, so that um, that was a really interesting conversation, just talking about um, diversity in media, um, women in media, and diverse images in, in media in terms of it could be anything from hair to body to narratives, and that's something that uh, Francesca really stressed. Um, was it's not just about having black people in a movie or about having black people in a TV show. That TV show and that movie needs to be good. And those those you know that those few TV shows and movies that we get shouldn't be all about the same thing. So they talked a lot about that. They talked about well, one of the interesting things that Francesca kind of repeated throughout the one hour conversation was your phase of problematic, um, meaning. You know, she, and it's interesting when she brought this up because the, because the crowd was just like, oh, no, she's not going to slander Martin. <laughs> but she talked about, and they actually showed a clip of this, um, talked about um, the the very casual transphobia and homophobia of Martin. Um, they actually showed clips of it, and we were all like, it was very conflicted, the, cr- the crowd, obviously, because the show is definitely, you know, tangibly revered among the audience. But then, like, okay. you know, when she was talking about these things, she was just like, oh, I mean, I love the show, but you're kind of right, but I'm uncomfortable talking about it. But she's the type of person <laughs> right. that she's, she, she also loves the show, and she, she's the type of person who can divorce um, these feelings of, like, oh, um, you know, just because I love this person or love this show, she doesn't think that it's perfect. She doesn't, she's not completely clouded in her judgment of just being um, a human and being a woman of color and, you know, off color Mm -hmm. comments that people make casually that she catches and that she's able to twist and um, satirize in a way that is profound and also just kind of bringing attention the, the wrongness of it. So anyway, I'm going to stop there. Um, I think those are all the things that I think, you guys would be interested in. I'm going to stop talking in general. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Did you have any other comments about Rebecca, Tim? Uh, no, I'm looking forward to seeing all the films you mentioned, especially the, the Marsha P. Johnson documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As soon as I heard about it, I was like, I need to see it. So I'm excited. 
Yeah, I hope you do get a chance to see it. Report back when you do. I totally want to hear your thoughts. But um, we're going to talk about Shot Fired. Um, So Shot Fired, which is, I freaking love this show, by the way. Um, It was, or is, um, executive produced by Reggie and Gina Bicewick, Gina Prince Bicewick. And it comes on Fox. And it is is essentially about two detectives who were brought to this town from another market, two black detectives who were brought to this town that has really been plagued with um, random killings, particularly of black men, young black men, and particularly by cops. Um, And so these two black cops, you know, coincidentally, two black cops were called in to to kind of assess the landscape, um, and in doing so, they also are called upon to um, unravel a case um, about a young black cop who shoots a white unarmed young man, and how that kind of in, in the inverse, we're so used to, we were sadly used to hearing it on the, on the reverse, but in this inverse narrative, it becomes even more interesting in the way that the media um, reacts to this story in the way that um, the black cops colleagues react to it, the way that the mother is perceived, um, the mother of the deceased is perceived and how she um, almost kind of in, infiltrates, for lack of a better word, in the black community that's already suffering from their own lack of acknowledgement um, of their of those who have died within the black community, and particularly those who have gone, who have um, who have come to the church, the black church, and in you know so that they can kind of receive some kind of solace and support and understanding. Um, and so I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of other things that I can say about this, but I'm going to throw this over to Kim. What do you think about the show so far? Um, yeah. So we're about halfway through the season. I think there are 10 episodes. We're on number six, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love the show as well. I was excited about the show and first heard about it. Um, they filmed the show in North Carolina, part of it in Charlotte and, like, the surrounding area. So I know a couple of people who worked on it, and they have been hyping mm-hmm. it up for, like, a year. So I was all mm-hmm. about this show. Plus, I just love the work that Dana uh, Prince Blackwood does and you know, she teamed up with her husband and like a power couple mm-hmm. here. Love Dana and Sana. They've worked together before, and it's always been great for me. So the mm-hmm. cast, I'll just start there, is Super duper, and that's mm-hmm. my clinical term. Super duper amazing. <laughs> um, you know, she's kind of this badass cop who has a lot of issues. You know, she you can tell mm-hmm. she has issues. She's not perfect. She is extremely flawed, but that makes her, you know, so amazing to me. You know, she is not exactly lovable at all times, but who is? You know, it's like mm-hmm. a very real character. Um, so mm-hmm. I love that that she's playing that part. Um, Stephen James, of course, plays Presentary. Uh, Presentary. He's the other. Um, I think he works for the Department of Justice. 
um, just come to town to kind of figure out this case. Mm-hmm. And their chemistry begins to be really good. Just the way they work together, because he's a very stand-up, by-the-book kind of guy, and she is completely rogue and kind of does things her own way. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Hennessy is the mother of the white kid that was shot. And I haven't seen Jim Hennessy in anything in a while, and I was just amazed at how awesome she is. Um, very good in this role. Um, yeah. Dewanda DeWise uh, Wise is someone that I was not very familiar with before, but she plays the mother of the black teenager that was um, killed, and she is amazing. Like, I follow her on Twitter now. Like, I want her to be my best friend. She is so amazingly mm-hmm. talented. Especially this mm-hmm. last episode, she had me all in my feelings. And just seeing her yeah. interaction with her, um, she had two sons. One was murdered, of course. And so just her mm-hmm. overwhelming need to try to protect the remaining son that she has will have you all the way mm-hmm. in your feelings every episode. There's just like mm-hmm. a sense of desperation there that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then one of my favorite characters, um, Aisha Hines, plays Pastor Janae. Mm-hmm. I'm so confused about how I feel about Pastor Janae because at first I love her, and then you see a scene, and you're like, wait a minute, do I love her? Should I love her? Don't <laughs> really complex. Yes, every episode I really don't know how I feel about Pastor Janae, <laughs> the character. I'm like, that to make me go through all these emotions. So, like I said, the cast is, oh, and I forgot, Tristan Wilde plays the black cop who has shot the white teenager. And I was one of the few people who watched the reincarnation of Beverly Hills 90210, so that's where I know him from. Mm. Um, and oh, right. that's where he's from. Yes. Okay. He was like the quote-unquote black Brandon on the new 90210. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do super adorable on there, and I, I just love him in general. So, um the cast mm-hmm. is amazing. Stephen Moyer, he plays a lieutenant. Every time yeah. I see him, I think he's going to turn into a vampire and, you know, yeah, true blood. So, yeah, the cast mm-hmm. is amazing. The story, mm-hmm. you know, with everything that's going on or that has been going on, you know, they kind of take that police shooting thing and kind of spin it because you do have this black cop who shoots this white kid. But it's so much more to the story. And every week, every hour, like you think you know where it's going, and they'll throw something else in there. They'll throw something to kind of spin it around. So mm-hmm. I don't know where the next four episodes are going to take us. I can't even begin to, you know, assume mm-hmm. because every time I do this, something else happens. And I'm like, Sitting there with my mouth open, trying to think, what do I tweet? Like, wow, what is So the story is really, really great. I love, I love it that it, that they have it, so that you know, I don't know how I feel about these characters. I don't know what's mm-hmm. happening next. You know, when you see the trailer, you heard the um, kind of like the background. You kind of thought you knew where it was going, but they have you know, created this amazing series that kind of keeps you guessing. So, so many layers to unpack. Mm-hmm. What's going on? I'm just kind of obsessed with this show. Yeah, I, I'll i say this one thing, though. I really do not want those two, the two cops and the detectives, I don't want them to hook up. Because I feel like there's some yeah. points that there's, like, some sexual tension. And it's like, please don't do this. Please like, I don't do this. 
But I feel mm-hmm. like in the beginning where they had her hook up with his brother, I was hoping that that would kind of be like the line where, okay, we can't cross this because mm-hmm. that would just be way too weird. <laughs> so I kind of right, hope that, that right, was right. they gave us that in the beginning to kind of clear up this is not going to happen. They can do all the long things mm-hmm. nothing is going to happen there. It's not, not an option. Mm-hmm. I hope not. Don't just ruin it for me. Yeah, yeah, it would. I'm just like, and I know that they have, with between the two cops, we get a little bit of their their um, personal life, more so Sanaa's <laughs> character. Um, and but, and I'm kind of like, and typically for me when I watch, and I watch a lot of cop shows, it's kind of my thing. But um, I typically like when they stray away from the personal lives because I feel like. I don't know. I, I, I'm honestly just not interested. I will say that I am less interested in her personal life than mm-hmm. her, um, than, you know, what's going on with, because there's so many personal lives to uncover that are affected by this case. Um, and really just, it's such a larger issue. It's really the landscape town um, and understanding who everybody is, everybody's agenda. And like you said, Pastor Janae, does kind of have an agenda. I mean, I was kind of with her on her agenda, and I was just like, I don't really know what you're about today, but I like generally I understand, but I feel like this scene, this one scene right here, I'm just like it's a little suspect, but I'm a, I'm a roll with it because it's you, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, I I mean, she's really, I mean, Aisha Hines is. First of all, Aisha Hines has been amazing for years, but I'm glad that we are now talking about her or, like, she's a brand new thing right now. I'm like, okay, that's how we're going to do it. Fine. <laughs> but, but she's fantastic. She's so, so, so good on the show. Uh, and I love that we never, we very rarely, at least for in my experience, we never really see um, a, um, a pastor depicted as a woman. Um, and right. so that's really, since I saw that, I mean, like a woman who wears like graphic t-shirts and braids and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> okay. <Right>. This is <laughs> really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I was like, I would totally go to Pastor Janae's church. Where is it? I'll go. Right. I'll be there. Right. And she's the type of person, right. And she's the type of character is just like, I mean, we can have church at the church, or we can have it, like, right here on the street, right here, because she'll just, like, all of a sudden bust out in a sermon, and just like, oh, you doing this right here on the street? With your, like, 15 <laughs> friends, 15 or 15 of your closest friends, your congregation right here? Um, but it's, it's interesting. I do think that the church is, is a very um, interesting gateway conversation to have in times like these in the South, and um, it as a way to build or to understand the relationship between the black community and the church, which is something that is so complex in itself. And I'm glad that the film, the, the film, the show really talks about that. Um, and talks about one of my favorite scenes is when Joe Hennessy um, comes into the church and almost is like, Oh, these are like my people. And she's, she's definitely, uh, introduced in that way, like, oh, a whole bunch, or a considerable amount of black moms who have lost their sons to police brutality and misconduct. And she 
somehow fits in that. Yes and no. (laughs) Um, In the way that, again, her story is received is so vastly different than the way that some of them have just been waiting for uh, the case to be solved, much less like national media attention. Um, And so that's something that I think is particularly profound and really just a highlight of what we've been talking about for so long. This is a thing that needs to be represented accurately. accurately. This is how something like that would play out in the inverse, which I think is a smart way to do it. Definitely, I agree. I agree. Um, I also like kind of, on my, I'm not sure if it was the first or second episode, you kind of get this tension between, you know, Pastor Janet, who's clearly, you know, this new wave civil rights leader, new wave church leader, and like the older pastor who came to like her little vigil, like he was a takeover, mm-hmm. and she was like, <laughs> but there is that tension on, you know, how do we deal with this mm-hmm. issue? Like we have these new uh, woke you know, civil rights people who, you know, mm-hmm, very into mm-hmm. the, and the hashtag and all that stuff. And then you have a very traditional, mm-hmm. you know, church, uh, old, then civil rights, uh, you know, brigade that kind of has their other way of mm-hmm. doing things. You can kind of get that attention. And those, you know, one thing, but it was enough. It was impactful. That, you know, you get, got what mm-hmm. they were saying. But so, like I said, there's so much going on. It's such a great show. Yeah. I'm obsessed. Yeah, um, and I think the last episode was directed by Jonathan Demi, who you know recently passed away. So just a little shout out there for him. Um, yeah, I, I have to say I was I was I was really I was in my feelings when I heard when I heard that news. I did not know that he um, was. I didn't even know that he directed TV shows, but I definitely didn't know that he was just about, like his his episode was about to air and that he even directed an episode about fight. So I was equally my feelings. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Um, he was such an, an amazing filmmaker and clearly just kind of ran the gamut in terms of the stories that he supported, um, including shot fires and the genres as well. Um, and the talent. But um, speaking of interlocking stories, um, let's talk about dear white people. <laughs> um, I will say briefly before I turn this over to you, Kim, I will say that it is an improvement. It's definitely an improvement on the movie, which I believe I, I reviewed on the show back when it was released. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'll say that it, the the movie bit off more than it, it can chew. It had so many, it had so much commentary in this what like two hour uh, time frame. Um, but all every because all, because of all the conversations that they wanted to stuff into that one one movie, that it came as a sacrifice to the characters in terms of character um, uh, build up and character analysis and um, the character development really, and so. That that was that was my major thing. I think was really hampered that movie. The TV show, the Netflix original series, um, it it definitely improves on that vastly. Um, and I like the way that um, Jesse Simeon, his team of filmmakers, um, um, 
decided to use each character as their own um, nar- or they they he he kind of went or or used each narrator or each character to tell their perspective on the same narrative um, that was linear throughout the entire series. Um, and so that was a very smart way because one, you got a chance to really kind of spend time with each character and really understand how each character navigated that one narrative. Um, so that was, it was way more streamlined. Um, and so I'll, I'll start there. Kim? Yeah, I agree. I do think that the movie... I like the movie. It wasn't perfect, but I did like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is better suited um, for television or in a serialized manner. Uh, I like the way that in the beginning, you know, like the, I think the first five episodes at least, you know, you kind of get a different character's perspective on the events that are taking place. So you get a more, mm-hmm. you know, laser view of what's going on as opposed to a fun mm-hmm. widely as the main character in the film. So I did like that because in the film, I don't think we could say anything from Reggie. Well, we got very little from Reggie, um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the characters. Uh, and Coco, mm-hmm. you know, you can see their their um, their point of view. So I do like that a lot. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. funny. <laughs> some of the jokes are pretty hilarious, mm-hmm. some of them are easier, mm-hmm. which makes them even hilarious. Um, but mm-hmm. I just don't have having a show like that where you get to see um, – just that demographic that we don't get to see a lot of, especially on television, you know, where we had a different woman. I feel like every show that has a college age black people and we compare it to a different world. This is not a different mm-hmm. world. It's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it's good. It's a different um, perspective that we don't get to see often, um, especially set on a PWI, which, you know, was the basis of the film too, because, you know, they call it Dear White People because they're, trying to shed some light in a funny way on some of these things that just really aren't that funny. Um, the first episode, mm-hmm. like the film, based, there's this uh, black party where, I guess, the, the kids are just like their favorite black celebrities, and, of course, they are in blackface, and they have these hideous mm-hmm. costumes, and, you know, mm-hmm. someone has to do that, and... Mm-hmm. They're trying to show that that's not okay. It's actually the opposite of okay. It is very okay. And all the emotions that it brings up for the, the women students and even some of the white students. So I do like the fact that, you know, it's on the college campus. They do use a lot of humor to kind of get through these very difficult conversations. I think it's mm-hmm. episode five, maybe. Uh, one of the characters gets a gun drawn on them and how that the emotional impact that has because in that moment he you know doesn't know if he's gonna lose his life and in the world we live mm-hmm. in today it's a very real possibility that a cop mm-hmm. will shoot you for mm-hmm. it doesn't take much. And just how he deals with that and how he's processing that but also how the school kinda has to deal with that. <clears throat> So um, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, um, I got through all ten episodes. It's really quick, you know. It's about five hours total because I think each episode is thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I I enjoyed it. I think that as a show, as a like it's a ten part series, it, it works a lot better than it did as a film. A lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's funny when I was writing my my review of the film 
back when it was released, I was just like, this might work better as a TV show. Because <laughs> I think that there are enough um, there are enough narratives to talk about. Definitely so much commentary and in the world that we're living in, the landscape that we're living in right now, there's so much to fuel narratives and actual storylines in this type of series. So I think, honestly, I think it's something that should have always been a series. Um, but I'm interested to see what they do um, in other seasons. I hope mm-hmm. that the, I, I do hope that they're longer because I feel like this and Chewing Gum, Chewing Gum is super short, too. I, I feel like it's like six <laughs> episodes and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, y'all, like, anymore, anymore. Um, but um, there are some, uh, I think this is just me wanting to have a conversation about certain things that I would love to see in a more, um, in a more expanded narrative. But I do realize that these weren't, you know, the, the, the focus of the conversations. And, of course, when it comes to interracial dating, when it comes to biracial identity, um, being a biracial um, activist in the Black community, um, and things like that, that it, it just all of these kind of were um, things that I thought about as we, as the, the um, season progressed. Um, okay. And talking about um, not only Black states, but also... Um, black people um, who are and I hate I hate to use this term and I'm trying to think of another way to say it but basically <laughs> um, black people who felt more comfort um, being white supporters um, I'm thinking of one character in particular who's very hell-bent on kind of being that black person in a white space, I'll say that, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah. and downplaying their blackness in order to make the white people feel comfortable. And so I would love to see something like that expanded. Things. So there's so much material, and especially as our ever-evolving landscape um, will tell you that there, there's just there's so many different ways to to um, there's so many different stories to, to really kind of talk about here. But they did a good job at again. I really appreciated the fact that they kind of stayed within one narrative um, from the point of view of all of the lead characters. So that was interesting. And thank God, what's his name? Oh my gosh, I can't even think of his name. The guy, um, the the student who is. Gay. What's the name of the character again? Lionel. Lionel, yes. So I'm glad that Lionel actually gets a storyline because it drove me crazy that he didn't really have a storyline in the movie. I was like, wait, what? I need more on Lionel. So I'm glad that he not only got a storyline, he got his own... um, his own episode so that was really good and that's what I that's what I think works about a um a narrative like this that each character does need their own um type of their own episode their own perspective because you see the way in which the the narrative is contextualized as well Mm -hmm. as how each character is navigating that narrative and that's really really important um, I was reading an interview. Um, I was reading an interview that Justin Simeon, the creator of the series and the film, um, 
had uh, done with GQ magazine. He was talking about, and he also listens to all like critics. <laughs> I mean, like, he'll, he'll, he pays attention to the conversation on, on social media. He pays attention to critical reviews and everything. And one of the things that he, uh, that stood out to him was how, I guess certain people, I didn't actually have this critique, but I guess certain people thought that um, he, he and the other writers didn't do enough to um, relate the the narrative in the film to what was going on in the socio-political space in our landscape, um, which I thought was interesting um, that that was a critique. But he took that to heart, and he really wanted to talk about some of those things for the series. He really wanted to make it topical and relevant, um, even like throwing in like there was this whole kind of like banter about Django and Chain, like you know, it was it was brief, but it was definitely in the series something like that, and talking about all lives matter. Um, I am interested because I know they just they had wrapped this, se- this season on election night, um, so I'm interested to see what black student activists look like in the age of Trump on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like that's something that he probably would um, integrate into the narrative. Um, so I'm interested, interested to see how they do so. Oh, yeah, that will definitely be interesting to see. That could have some <laughs> great uh, mm-hmm. interactions with those characters, especially on that campus. So that is our show today. Thank you guys all for listening once again. Um, we will be back in two weeks for a Twitter chat. Check us out on Cinema in Noir on Twitter. Um, and the hashtag Cin Noir, C-I-N-N-O-I-R. Um, and until next time, thanks you guys for tuning in. Have a great Sunday. Bye. <laughs>